Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. I'd love to take a quick moment to tell you about one of our partners who make this podcast possible. Softlayer, an IBM company. Softlayer operates a global cloud infrastructure platform built for internet scale and provides infrastructure as a service to customers ranging from web startups to global enterprises. Softlayer began as a bootstrap startup started in the founder's living room. Eight years later, they were acquired by IBM for $2.1 billion and through it all maintained the belief that startups are what makes the world go round. Softlayer's Catalyst program offers free credits for customized hosting across both virtual and bare metal machines, offering public and private clouds. Catalyst also makes it a point to provide a lot of support for early stage companies. They understand that no two startups are the same and refuse to take a cookie cutter approach to supporting Catalyst companies. Every startup gets personalized attention and feedback from a team of startup veterans and technical experts. For more info, check out softlayer.com catalyst. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have the managing director of the female-centric crowdfunding site, Plum Alley. Plum Alley is a site specifically made for women consumers and women looking to crowdfund from other women. It further differentiates itself by offering expert help to crowdfunders, which has created a funding success rate of near double Kickstarter and quadruple that seen on Indiegogo. Jan has also held high-level positions at nonprofits, including the Girl Scouts, Teach for America, the Sierra Club, and as the CFO of Planned Parenthood International. She then went on to found the Six Figures Women Network and her own client relations and brand management consultancy called SWIG. Jane is interviewed by our Tampa Bay chapter director, Joy Randalls. Let's listen in. You know, you've kind of come a long way from a small town in <laughs> Nebraska. Just an FYI, I mean, like, Nebraska to Manhattan's quite a change. There was a few stops along the way. There, there were a few right? stops along the way. A few stops yeah. along the way. So you started on the finance side, right? You kind of moved up through the ranks, ultimately <laughs> becoming the CFO at Planned Parenthood. After doing that, it's kind of a jump. So let's talk about like life after CFO. So from CFO, you decided to like start your own business. And isn't that a little crazy? I mean, CFO is kind of safe and you went off the cliff. So talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, it's interesting when I was in the philanthropic sector, my, my background, and I started my career when I was 10, just to let you all know. But um, <laughs> I was in the corporate sector for 10 years, working in industries as diverse as, as Joy mentioned, um, cosmetics and fashion, and then um, dermatology, pharma, um, was a business manager of a radio station in undergrad. So my background was already insanely eclectic by the time that I launched a career in the nonprofit sector. And what I realized is that nonprofits are often really skilled and really passionate about their mission, but often they're not so effective on the finance side. So for those of us in the room who have either served on boards or have been involved with nonprofit organizations, I'm sure you can relate on some level. And so I would come in to a nonprofit organization and kind of clean house in the sense of I would often be responsible for writing policies and procedures, implementing new technologies, helping organizations think about how to run more effectively and efficiently. Sometimes that meant having to go in and replace teams, which sure. was often very painful for the organization. Um, but with the end result of really helping a nonprofit organization to think about the fact that it really does on some level need to think about running itself as a business because then you're providing a greater level of transparency to your donors. And so even though I was in a finance level type of role, I always thought kind of outside the box from the perspective of how can an organization work faster, better, more efficiently with the talent that they have. And so that kind of segued nicely into then working with companies to help companies understand how they're perceived and experienced by their clients and their customers and their constituencies and their communities at large. So it's interesting, so you, you're you now, um, it's funny, I own the domain Parallel Entrepreneur and I was thinking about this yesterday when we were talking, I was like, you know, I should probably like, I'm, I'm gonna start a blog and I should get like you to write blog posts too because you're like <laughs> as crazy as I am. Um, like, you, you technically, so you're doing the work at Plum Alley, you have your own consulting company and you have six figures, uh -huh. right? Um, which came first? Six Figures or Plum Alley? Uh, six Figures came first. So when I launched Six Figures, I was still, I was the CFO of International Planned Parenthood and had also been on the domestic side for a while. 
in addition to, as Joy mentioned, working at Teach for America and the Girl Scouts. Um, to this day, I could not eat a Girl Scout cookie because I ate so many Thin Mints when I was there. <laughs> Wow. Um, but I launched Six Figures because I saw a need in the market. So I was, um, at the time, at the same time I was with International Planned Parenthood, I was starting to work with entrepreneurs um, on the side. It's kind of like a side fun hobby, helping entrepreneurs who had la nearly launched their businesses understand now all of a sudden they may have left the corporate sector to launch their own company. And sometimes that was a very scary experience because now you're kind of out there naked 24-7, right? And from a brand perspective, you know, you are, you are your own brand. And I worked with people to help them understand then how their brand related to the company brand that they were building. So for me, myself, I was attending a lot of networking events, kind of doing my own guerrilla grassroots marketing strategy for, for that. <laughs> As we, I'm sure most of us can relate to that guerrilla grassroots marketing strategy. Um, and would often attend a lot of events and come home at the end of the evening and think, oh my god, that was such a waste of time. <laughs> How many of us have had that, had that experience? <laughs> and um, some events I would walk away thinking, oh my gosh, I have a stack of business cards, I don't remember who any of these people are, or the speaker wasn't fabulous, or the food wasn't great, or the beer sucked, or whatever the case was. And I just kept thinking, I can do this better, I can do this better, I can do this better. And I would think about the groups that did it really well, and they were often really narrowly focused in one specific area for one specific industry or one specific something. And I really, at the time I had been in New York City for several years and I thought, well, my world feels like it's becoming more narrowly defined. And after a while, people kind of start to hang out with people who look like them. And I really wanted to have an experience that really embraced the true professional diversity of New York City. And I really, for myself, wasn't experiencing that. So Hurricane Sandy hit Manhattan. And uh, International Planned Parenthood was located in the financial district, and so was my home. So we were kind of out of commission for a while, and I thought, all right, so this is a time where I can kind of see what happens here. Because a lot of other people were having a difficult time because of displacement and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I invited a group of women that did not know each other to, for cocktails one evening, two weeks after Hurricane Sandy. And 35 women showed up. And in December, we did the same thing. 35 women showed up. And then in January of that next year, I um, uh, created a launch party. And we had 120 women with a waiting list. And honestly, it's grown very organically. And I think that what's really different about Six Figures is that it was created from the perspective of really creating a very friendly, open place where women felt comfortable walking into the room. So no matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert, no matter what your background or professional career trajectory is like, you always feel very welcome walking into that room with smiley faces. We're all very happy. It may be because we've been drinking, <laughs> but I think that's just a small part of it. <laughs> So we've had a, a, what almost, oh my gosh, two and a half years of Six Figures events. We've, um, I've hosted over 35, 36 events for the group now. We're rolling on a membership model at the end of this year, um, scaling to other cities. And good news, Florida's on the, one, of, one of the first lists. Cool. Yeah. So you've done, like throughout your career, right, even though people might not realize it, there's all these ties back to women, mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like there's this underlying mission to help women. Why is that so important to you? You know, I don't, it's, that's a really good question. Um, I think honestly growing up in the Midwest, um, but yet growing up in um, a family that owned a business, my parents owned a business together. And so I grew up seeing my mom having a career. And so even though I'm from the Midwest, when I tell people I'm from the Midwest, I get really weird questions like, do you have paved roads? Do you have the internet? <laughs> Did you ever have, have you ever tried sushi? Like just crazy questions. Um, but my experience was really different because I always saw my mom going to work every day. And I think for me, that, that in and of itself, she led a really good example, I think, without even realizing that she was an example. And for me, um, it's, you know, whether I'm involved in a social justice issue like um, the work that I did for the Arizona Foundation for Women or for Planned Parenthood or Sierra Club or whatever, um, to my work in the academic sector where I did a lot of race, class, gender work, um, really understanding um, how um, privilege and how power impacts the choices that even determines from day one the family or the community or the culture that we're born into. 
and how that then plays out from a socioeconomic political perspective has always been really interesting to me. So that has really largely shaped my work, both in terms of the volunteer work that I do and then the work that I do in terms of how my career is structured. But again, I, I like men. So <laughs> for the guys in the room, <laughs> all the work I do, we do like men too in every aspect. So thank you for being here tonight. <laughs> A little bit about you as an entrepreneur, right? Because there's kind of been both sides of this, right? And it seems like almost all the time you've had both things going on in your life. So there's something entrepreneurial there. Yeah. Yeah, there was this other job thing there. So there's kind of both sides of it. So if you were stepping back a few years, like earlier in your career, what piece of advice do you wish someone had given you early on that would have made a bigger impact on how quickly you kind of got yeah, to where that's you a, that's to go. a really good question. Um, you know, my my career has been really eclectic, and I've always been kind of a person who goes out and throws a bunch of things against the wall to see what sticks. And sometimes I haven't necessarily thought things through, <laughs> which you know serves entrepreneurship really well because right. then you can pivot really fast and you can change. Um, but. You know, honestly, I think for me, um, being the oldest child, I was always really insanely independent. And I kind of always wanted to leave and have something that was much larger than just the community that I knew. And I think the one piece of advice that I didn't learn until after I was in New York was the importance of a good network and the importance of really building relationships with people who look like you and people who don't look like you. And I have found that there's an incredible amount of creative energy that comes out from having relationships with people that are outside of your industry, outside of your kind of comfort zone. And that means really pushing the borders to force yourself, particularly if you're an introvert. I was very, very, believe it or not, I was very shy as a child. And so for me, I always thought, okay, I'm a strong woman, hear me roar, I'm a feminist, I can do this on my own. And you really can't do it on your own. And I think if I would have learned that earlier on, my career not necessarily would be in a different place, but it was a learning lesson that I learned much later on. So that would be one of my, one of my biggest pieces of advice that I would give to, to women who are coming up through their careers now. So it's interesting. So you have like, um, it seems like it's a juxtaposition, but I'm not sure it is. Because you have, say, six figures, right, which is um, more affluent women. Mm -hmm. And yet you have Plum Alley, which is a huge, diverse group mm -hmm. of women. Mm -hmm. But both of the networks are growing, and you have the ability to see kind of what's happening in mm -hmm. both of those. How does that influence the way you work today? Well, you know, it's interesting. So what the work that we're doing at Plum Alley Net right now is that we realize that, um, you know, female entrepreneurship covers such diversity. In, in the sense of the, the companies that we're creating, the products that we're building, and the ideas that we're implementing. And what we've understood is that it really takes multiple sides of the equation to really make that work effectively. So when we started crowdfunding, um, crowdfunding, as most of us know, is, is the platform by which you can raise money from your communities and your networks. Uh, what we realize is that that in and of itself is only one part of the equation, that it really takes people with money to actually want to buy the stuff that you're selling. <laughs> and I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, we get kind of stuck in, oh my gosh, this product is the best right. thing since Velcro. And then we kind of forget that, oh my gosh, you actually have to go out and sell this stuff now, right? And so one of the initiatives that we're working on at Plum Alley actually bridges both of those parts of the equation together and links female entrepreneurs with an audience who's really interested in funding, not, not from an equity perspective, because we really believe that um, to the extent possible, until you're ready for angel or VC money, you should really retain control and equity of your company. Right. Um, but we're building a larger movement that's going to connect women who have the, women and men who have the ability to write a check, so you guys can write a check too. <laughs> <laughs> We, you can write a check tonight if you want um, with, the, with the, the entrepreneurs who are actually trying to grow and scale their businesses. I think sometimes, too, women think about scaling at a much slower rate because from a sociological gender perspective, women often don't take risks at the same level that men do. Um, we don't like to ask for help because we feel like we can do it all. And we also think that we can do it better than anybody else. <laughs> and we don't like to ask for money. We get really uncomfortable when that happens. So at Plum Alley, we're developing a lot of processes and tools and mechanisms for women to overcome that. So what, when they're ready for angel or VC money, then they're ready to take it off. That's cool. So tell me, what's the best part and the worst part about being a female entrepreneur? Um, oh my gosh, well, 
Um, I think that the best part is not having to go to an office every day where, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, that's one of the best parts where you, have the, <laughs> where you don't have to put on your IBM suit and traipse into it, right? Um, I think one of the best parts is having the, the creativity and the autonomy to do what you really want to do. So I know from Six Figures, having had over 1,200 conversations with women over the last two years, is that many women have left their corporate jobs, even if they were in a sweet, sweet, C-suite global position to found their own companies. Women often tend to think about the growth much slower because they don't necessarily want the responsibility of managing 400 people anymore, or they don't want to take on the level of fiduciary responsibility or the level of risk. Um, but at the same time, they do understand that that's also going to limit their opportunities for angel or VC money down the road, right? So that's one of the things that I think female entrepreneurs always struggle with is, you know, how can I make a larger impact in my community? Because women are often also very nurturing and really want to give back to their communities and they want to do that through their businesses. Um, but then how do you balance the ability to do that with the growth and the scale that comes with being able to do that at a, a very large level without having to manage teams anymore of 400 people. <laughs> that makes sense. So can we talk a little bit, switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about innovation, right? So yeah. people are gonna talk about innovation and um, there's all kinds of philosophies on that, right? So the goal is like better, faster, stronger. So talk about something like recent where you've had an impact that you think made things work more efficiently, mm -hmm. you know, generate more income, something that you thought was innovative, any kind of project that mm -hmm. you worked on. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the consulting projects that I work on, the companies often come to me because they're at a point of tension right. where they know that they need to do something differently. And whether revenue is stalled or they feel like the team has become stagnant or they need to kind of take it to the next level, um, I come in and help them understand how to do that either from a technological perspective. So like if the organization focused more on social media, how would that impact change or how would that help them to become more familiar with a different demographic? Other things that we have done are just looking at internally really antiquated processes and understanding how we can use technology in whatever shape or form to push the ball forward. And whether that's from a finance or an IT or an HR perspective, or if it's you know developing a new innovative product or doing something quicker or faster. Um, you know, I also always caution organizations on growing too fast right. and innovating too much. And I think we're so tapped into all of these things now that we think really fast. And I think that sometimes we think that companies need to also move that fast. And there's the balance between experimenting with a new product or a new process or a new something that you're selling and thinking, oh my gosh, we've been doing this for a month and we've gotten no traction, we need to pivot and go into a different direction without really taking time to let it marinate, to really build the buzz around that, to really see if there's sustainability and growth surrounding that. So there's, I think for me, a lot of the companies that I work with, there's always that tension between how fast do you scale, um, what resources do you use to build that growth in the momentum versus how long do you actually let something marinate before you say this isn't working, let's try something different. <laughs> yeah, before you put the baby. Okay, it's like, all right. So, I mean, you're clearly your background, like we look at a lot of different ways, but outside of finance, your background's really in branding, right? I mean, from, from that perspective. So, if we look at branding, there's a thousands of companies that do branding, right? I mean, we just like mm -hmm. Google branding and like the list would go on for an eternity. <laughs> so, when people come to you, tell me what's really different about your company when it comes to branding that separates you from the fray because yeah. you've worked with some of the top brands that are out there. So why you? What the work that I do is really different because it really draws on my really very early years as a teenager working in my parents' stores. And so as a teenager, I went on buying trips, I did all the virtual merchandising, I sold on the floor, and my parents owned clothing stores in communities in the Midwest of under 10,000 people. And so for them, establishing and developing and cultivating the relationships with the local communities were incredibly important because if you didn't do that, people would not keep coming back, right? And so it was really understanding who your clients were, who your customers were, and really treating them like your family. And the work that I do now on the branding side um, is brand experience management, which really means, um, my little tagline that I say is, I help you understand what's being said about you behind your back after you leave the party. <laughs> <laughs> So the work that I do is around perception management and helping companies build really fabulous experiences. And in many instances where companies fall short from their larger branding work that they do is that they don't really take time to talk to their employees and their teams to really understand how the front line experiences their customers. 
and how employees really feel about the company. And so the work that I do is really from the bottom up, and I start with that front line, helping companies to understand, you know, really what is being said about them behind their back, right? Like, it goes far beyond a customer survey, because when a company sends out a customer survey, they already have an idea of what they want to hear. <laughs> so I help a company understand what they don't want to hear <laughs> and how they can improve on that, because that's going to help them to propel their revenue in a different way. So I've read some of the stuff that you've written on, like, from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things you talk about is that you do a brand review mm -hmm. with your clients. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Like, how, how does that approach work? Kind of what are some of the key components of that? Yeah, it's the brand review takes a lot of different shapes and forms depending upon the client's needs. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's a series of focus groups. Sometimes it's um, kind of like almost secret shopping where my team goes in and shops the brand and then gives objective, honest feedback without the company understanding that we're actually shopping the brand. <laughs> um, it means questionnaires. It means interviewing different teams. Um, and it means talking to people that the brand doesn't necessarily, the brand of the company doesn't necessarily know that, um, that impact the way that um, revenue is being generated or sustained. So for example, I really firmly believe that even if an employee is not in an externally facing role, they still have the possibility of being the brand's biggest fan because of social media, because of what we say to our friends and what we say on social media and et cetera, et cetera, that a company has a responsibility to make sure that they're doing everything in their ability to treat their employees right. And in a way, then those employees can become brand ambassadors. So we do a lot of work at the employee level too. This is kind of interesting. So how big of an impact do you think ha emotional ROI is, right? So I mean, the emotional connection mm -hmm. with the brand, what's the real mm -hmm. ROI on that? And how's a way that companies can begin to measure that? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I always think about, um, some of us in the room are old enough to remember the, um, when Apple was revitalizing their brand and the campaign, the ad campaign that they ran where there was a guy who looked like he worked at IBM and there was a hipster guy who looked like he lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And one was a PC and one was a Mac. And <laughs> how many remember that company? <laughs> And there was something so pure and clean about that ad campaign. And Apple did a brilliant job with attracting a completely new demographic because all of a sudden no one wanted to be in the IBM suit anymore, right? And so that branding campaign made you feel something and it made you want to connect with the brand and the products within those brands products within that brand in a very different way. And so I always, um, the work that I do always places the question, how does this make you feel at the center of every analysis point that we make? Because honestly, as we know, a brand is really a living, breathing organism that embodies really what consumers feel and what they hate and what they love about what you're doing. Sure. Right. And so most of the work that we do actually challenges executives and challenges teams to reverse the thinking and I think that we've become um, a society where we think so much because we can shoot off you know, 20 emails within 10 minutes, which causes us to, <laughs> or even maybe even more. Um, or you know, we can read you know, snippets of articles where we you know, learn everything from you know, what to make for brunch next weekend to you know, who's the latest CEO of Cisco to et cetera, et cetera, right. within a very short period of time. So our, we've trained our minds to think very quickly. But what that really caused us to do is to lose the ability to stop and say, how is this making us feel? And if brands are able to recapture that, then you're tying into the emotive components of really how customers can fall in love or re-fall in love with what you're doing. Cool. So outside of crowdfunding, because we're going to talk about crowdfunding in a minute, so don't panic that I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what advice would you give entrepreneurs on determining who to target, right? Because that's one of the hardest things. The product market fit is one of the most challenging mm -hmm. things when you're bringing something to market. So we'll talk about how crowdfunding impacts that mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. But you were doing this long before there was crowdfunding. <laughs> so. <laughs> you know, for, for an entrepreneur, I think the question really comes down to, you know, if you have a product in mind or you're already manufacturing a product, you're already selling a product, like really who is that product best serving? Who's going to get the most value out of that product? Um, and what demographic then most closely corresponds with ultimately um, that level of benefit? And you know, for me, um, at, at Plum Alley, we work in, a, in a, another crowdfunding or another um, co-working space where there are literally hundreds of companies. 
right? And what I see is that um, the companies who do it the best really understand um, their customer and they understand the fact that the product that they've developed, they're doing their MVP in a very specific, narrow way that they're not trying to serve everybody, but they're serving those individuals who, no matter if it's a dating app, no matter if it's a, um, um, I can't get beyond the dating app now, right. but no matter what, <laughs> 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 or a consumer product or whatever the case is, finding out who your core customer is and actually providing that service as a beta to different audiences okay. can also be a really good way to help you test to see really who's interested in it. And that's one of the things that we can talk about with Plum Alley too is that um, a crowdfunding campaign can be a really nice way to test the market to see really who exactly is interested in what you're selling. Would you give a tip on how to get the message out once you've kind of done that on a shoestring budget? <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> well, because I mean, like startups have no money. Right? So yeah. that's the challenge, right? They have no money. Yeah. It's not that they wouldn't hire a great marketing firm if yeah. they had money, but they don't have any yeah. money. Well, you know, just FYI, um, at Plum Alley, we've not spent one marketing dollar. Um, at Six Figures, we've not spent one marketing dollar, and it really comes down to word of mouth. So identifying a core group of individuals who really love what you're doing and have tested your product and have given you feedback, good and bad, and really feel like you're taking their feedback at heart and really incorporating that feedback into whether it's your next version or the way that you market or the way that you communicate um, and starting off small. So, you know, speaking engagements are a great way for an entrepreneur or an executive team to, you know, share in the spotlight and be able to build your brand buzz. Um, develop relationships with local media, which is another really great way to tell your story. Um, and to really be able to tell your story from a way that sets you apart from everybody else who's in your space. Because I can guarantee you, there's rarely one unique original idea that we hear about. Because even though you may think that your idea, no one else has thought of it, I can almost guarantee you someone so else has thought problem. about it. And more often than not, we probably have already heard about it in Plum Alley. <laughs> so what we find to be really compelling, and I find this with my consulting work too, is that the founder's ability to tell his or her story in such a way that it almost draws someone to tears or makes someone laugh or makes something feel something and that's the level of connectivity that you want because again, what you're selling is either a service or a product, right? And that's something that's okay. something, even though a service is really tangible, but to be able to connect with your audience in such a way where you're sharing your story in a compassionate way. And you know, no matter if it's something that you're absolutely in love with or something that you, you know, kind of just like, but to be able to connect with your, your audience in that way is really very critical. So I'm gonna put you on the spot now. Yeah. So you're in the process of rebranding yourself. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it like to step out of yourself, right? Because you kind of have to take a step back and be very um, pragmatic um, about going through the rebranding process. So, and, and figuring out, you know, what you've evolved to and yeah. how you want that to happen. That's part one of the question. Part two is, are you doing it by yourself? A quick break from Jan Mercer for some recent startup headlines. The Obama administration is set to establish an innovation hub in Silicon Valley meant to improve manufacturing techniques for flexible hybrid electronics. The consortium will include 162 nonprofits, universities, labs, and companies, including Apple, Stanford, and General Motors. Google launches a home services product beta in SF Bay Area, will allow users to search for a home-related problem, and returns widgets with relevant providers, contact info, and ratings. Users can book without leaving the search page. Pros pay for placement using Google AdWords. Apple TV's next remote will feature motion sensors for game control, according to TechCrunch sources. Other reports indicate touchpad and Siri microphone. Apple will reportedly launch a TV app platform for content from third-party developers. Let's get back to the interview. <laughs> um, well, honestly, with the rebranding stuff, I am doing that on my own. Um, but it's based upon a lot of feedback that I've received from my own clients. Um, in addition to having the 1,200 conversations that I've had with women, no matter if they're entrepreneurs or business owners or you know, C-suite executives, um, where I started out um, with my own consulting work, if you could call it like the MVP, in a way where um, I kind of cast a wide net because for me, I wasn't necessarily sure at the end of the day who I wanted to work with. I knew who I could work with based upon my experiences and my skill set and what would be the easiest to sell, 
But for me, I knew that at the end of the day, that necessarily wasn't the demographic I really wanted to work with. I think as entrepreneurs, sometimes we get stuck in the, you know, the path of least resistance without checking in with ourselves to say, okay, am I really selling to the, the audience or the demographic or the group or the industry that I really want to be selling to? And so for the last two years, I've cast the wide net and I've learned a lot and I really have learned how to pay attention at every point along the engagement life cycle. I've checked in with myself to say, how is this making me feel? Does this client drive me crazy? Is she calling me or he calling me at three o'clock in the morning and leaving voice messages? How does that make me feel? Um, <laughs> Probably true a little Am I generating satisfaction by working with this client? Sure. Um, am I cringing every time I send this client an invoice? You know, all of those questions that I think as entrepreneurs we, you know, we experience from time to time. And then saying, okay, so this, this set of people really makes me angry a lot. Or this group of people or this group of clients or this industry type really provides me with a lot of fulfillment. Because as entrepreneurs, we have to show up on our best behavior 24-7. And if we're fighting with ourselves internally around do we really want to work with this person, then that client's going to be able to right. like sense that too, right? So my rebranding re process has been a process of understanding you know, what industries I really want to work with, what industries do I not want to work with anymore, um, and what kind of people really make me happy, where I can actually generate um, a really nice, um, um, a really nice community of people that I feel can I can also connect with each other as well. All right. So now we'll talk about crowdfunding. Yeah. Because so, um, <laughs> it's all going to kind of make sense in a minute. I promise. So it's interesting. There was um, there was a recent report that came out of I think Babson um, in in UNC, and it's talking about crowdfunding in general. So. You know, there's upsides and downsides to mm -hmm. both, right? So upsides is like building building buzz. It's about creating your tribe. I can test things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things, right? Downside is it takes a whole lot of work, mm -hmm. right? And it could backfire if it fails, mm -hmm. right, from an investment mm -hmm. perspective. There's an interesting thing. 70% of the participants, apparently there were roughly 3,500 that they surveyed, um, did it to validate demand for the product. Mm -hmm. Only 30% did it because they couldn't get funds elsewhere. It's a very interesting thing, right? Because that's kind of a misconception, I believe, yeah. about crowdfunding in general. 54%, only 54% said that they could not have done it if they hadn't met their crowdfunding goal, that they had other funds elsewhere, right? 59% um, were new business and 17% were new product. So what that really tells us is it's really about the crowd and not the funding, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right, from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So when we look at Plum Alley, tell me why we need a crowdfunding site just for women. And how does it differ? Because there are some others. There's companies like Missionuity, like Fundreamer. You know, I, I mean, I know the differences in CrowdHelps. But talk a little bit about the components of Plum Alley and why it's different. Yeah. Deborah Jackson founded Plum Alley because of her own experiences being on Wall Street and then being an angel investor and founding a couple of tech incubators for female entrepreneurs in New York City herself. And what she learned was that women really lacked the self-confidence to be able to interject themselves into arenas where the guys were already playing. And so there's a lot of debate around, you know, to what degree are women really discriminated against when it comes to funding. And, you know, we also argue that women aren't necessarily even showing up to be considered in those conversations. And so at Plumel, we've done a lot of work to understand why that happens. And what we've realized is that, um, Crowdfunding or any type of funding is so scary, right? Because you're really putting your love, your your baby out there, right? And you can be rejected, you can be accepted, or you can be rejected. And the sense of rejection is often really very painful, as a lot of us know, if we've had to kind of change our business models for whatever reason. Um, and we've learned that from a sociological perspective, like I mentioned before, women don't often like to ask for money. Women don't often take risks in the same degree that guys do. Um, women um, find more comfort in nurturing environments where there's um, a lot of conversation and a lot of feedback and a lot of um, conversing and the decision-making process is much longer. And that really stems to how we're socialized at a very young age. And men are often very socialized to feel more comfortable taking risks and feeling, and guys, no offense, feeling like, okay, so this idea is 40% baked. I'm gonna go out and do something about it. 
Right, let's go. <laughs> and you're okay, more or less, with failing, or at least understanding that there's a learning lesson behind everything, and then you, you, know, you alter the plan and you keep going. Women, on the other hand, think, oh my God, it's not 100% perfect, it's only 99.999% perfect. <laughs> and I'll admit, yeah, we've all been there, right, before we actually execute on something. So Deborah wanted to create a space where women actually felt safe in learning how to do things a bit differently, to really gain the self-confidence, to put their toe in the water with a crowdfunding campaign. And honestly, you know, the average crowdfunding campaign across all platforms is only $7,000. Our average is twenty to 30000 And even at twenty to $30,000, we are not talking about $3 million. We're not talking about $30 million. But the skills that you learn by executing a crowdfunding campaign can teach you so much about yourself and so much about your business because you're right, it's a lot of work. And to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign, it can teach you, is there market demand for what you've, what you've produced? Um, have you tested the market? Um, is your product viable? Um, do people want to buy it? Do your fans actually support you in the way that you hope that they're supporting you? Um, it can be a really nice way to market what you're doing as a part of your larger marketing toolkit. So there are a lot of different reasons to do a crowdfunding campaign, but for me, having a sociological background, it also gives women much more confidence that they then feel more confident with playing in the same sandbox and when it comes later on for angel or VC money. Cool. So, but Plum Alley has, there's like three different legs. I mean, it didn't start just as a crowdfunding no, platform. No, And you've got some different components. And I think outside of the those things, talk a little bit about what that is because I think it lends itself, it doesn't really matter who's doing it. Those pieces are really a requirement. It's interesting how Plum Alley has integrated those yeah. pieces into a truly a platform. Yeah. So in year one of Plum Alley, we were high-end e-commerce for female entrepreneurs. And so we were like a marketplace. And then after we did that for a year, we realized that that's only addressing a small part of the need. And with everything I just said, Deborah also wanted to provide a space for women to actually practice and raise money and start to narrow the playing field in the sense of women also increasing their access to capital. So we launched Plumelli, I guess you could call it 1.50 <laughs> last year. I mean, that was the first time we did crowdfunding. And then from 1.50 to 2.0, we learned a lot from the female entrepreneurs because what makes us different from the other sites is that you can actually find our phone number on our website. <laughs> I know, shock, <laughs> shocker. <laughs> and we pick up the phone. <laughs> and we invite people into our office. <laughs> oh, that's just crazy. We'll make you a cup of coffee. <laughs> And so through those conversations, we really have learned what women really struggle with. And honestly, it's also a lot of the same things that guys struggle with when they're launching businesses too. So, you know, make no bones about that. And I will say that, you know, Plum Alley is a, a platform for female entrepreneurs and women-owned businesses. Um, but if there are guys on your team, like we welcome those guys too. We just want to make sure that there's at least one woman on the founding team. So I'll just, full disclosure, again, we like guys. <laughs> um, Plum Alley's success rate is 70 to 80%. Whereas Kickstarters is 44%, and Indiegogo, if you only look at those campaigns that are funded at the $500 level and above, their success rate is under 10%. So there's still a perception out there that if you post a crowdfunding campaign, the world is going to come and fund it, and that's just not true. Like 80 to 90% of a crowdfunding campaign will come from your own network. And we work with campaigns to help them understand who their networks are, that it's more than just who's in your social media, but it's actually you know, who your kids play with, it's who's on your holiday card list, it's you know, who you socialize with, who, if you um, belong to a religious community, it's who's in that community, et cetera, et cetera. And we have um, a bunch of really nice tips and checklists and hints and processes built into the back end of the product so that if you're a checklist person, you can know that we've boiled down crowdfunding to six steps. And you can actually check things off of a checklist as you go through the budgeting exercise, if you go through the rewards exercise. <laughs> um, and again, you can pick up the phone and talk to us. <laughs> um, we also understand that fundraising in and of itself for, for anyone can be really frightening. And it can become a really long process. And so we have a whole marketing plan that we help crowdfunding campaigns think through so that when they go live, they're really setting themselves up for success. One of the things that we learned early on 
just in the last couple of months that we've implemented into the new, the new Plumelli 2.0 is that um, we know statistically, and this is a, true across all platforms, that if you don't raise 30% of your campaign goal within the first 48 hours, you're probably not going to succeed. And it doesn't matter if it's a 30-day campaign or a 60-day campaign, like that's a pretty um, true statistic. And so what we've done is we've implemented a process where you can crowdfund, you can raise from your crowd behind the scenes before your campaign actually goes live. So what happens is that you upload all the components into your crowdfunding campaign. We can go back and forth with edits. So we actually give you feedback on your campaign to help you build your campaign and write your story in a much more compelling way. And then once everyone says, oh my gosh, this is a fabulous campaign, you can actually take the URL and send it to your entire universe to raise money behind the scene. And then once you hit 30%, then your campaign goes live on our site and we promote you and we write about you in all of our social media so that then you have access to our network too. Again, 80 to 90% of a campaign comes from your own network, but then you do get that extra visibility. We also come up with really creative ways where you can help your campaign raise money. So if you really do not like picking up the phone and dialing for dollars, you can actually create a fundraising committee where you get your, your biggest Kool-Aid drinkers together and you share the love and you give them fundraising goals and then they go out and actually raise money on your behalf and you give them very special thank yous and you reward them and you mention them on your social media. You can call them their, your advisory council or et cetera, et cetera. You give them kudos on your website and they feel like they're also a part of helping your company grow. Cool. I have a lot, a lot of other ideas I can share with you too. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting, like Plumelli doesn't take just any project. Right. right. So what's the real process to get on the platform and what kind of metrics do you look for when making the selection yeah. to determine if somebody gets to play? Yeah. Part of it's intuitive. Um, so it's interesting that we've had some projects come to us where we think, wow, this product is the best thing since, I don't know. Velcro. Velcro, yes. <laughs> um, and the project fails. And then we have other projects that come to us and we think, oh my God, who's gonna buy this? And they blow it out of the ballpark. And it really comes down, <laughs> and it really comes down to how determined the entrepreneur is not to let the campaign fail. Because she either wants to scale her business or she wants to do an angel or a VC round and she knows that a crowdfunding campaign can communicate to the world that she really has a viable concept and that she really is serious about scaling her business. And she knows that if that crowdfunding campaign fails, then it could be a really strong indication that there isn't market demand for her product. So she's really committed to reaching out to her network. She's really committed to the social media strategy. She's really committed to picking up the phone and dialing for dollars. We had one campaign say to us, um, I don't understand what's wrong with my campaign. I can post a picture of a cat on my Facebook and get 10,000 likes within 30 minutes and no one's contributing to my campaign. I'm spending seven hours a day on social media. And so we said, well, we told you not to spend seven hours a day on social media. You actually have to pick up the phone. Oh, I'm not going to pick up the phone. I'm too scared to pick up the phone. And we said, well, you know, posting a picture of a cat on your social media versus compelling someone who's reading your Twitter feed, take out a credit card when they're probably doing 20 other things at once, <coughs> click through and then actually contribute to a campaign is two very different levels of engagement, two very different psychological processes. So you really need to think about ways where you can establish the relationship with your end user from a fundraising perspective to really say, okay, these are the donors that I think in my network who are gonna give me the most amount of money. I'm gonna take them out for coffee. I'm gonna take them out for a glass of wine at happy hour. I'm gonna give them a call. I'm gonna send them a really special email again and again and again until they actually contribute. And there are different things that you can do to provide that level of high touch, um, which actually people then, you know, people contribute to crowdfunding campaigns because they really want to see you succeed. It's not really about the rewards. Are you um, sure? Because you're kind of describing a stalker. So maybe it's <laughs> 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 it could be if you're just a really good enough stalker, you're good. Well, if you stalk in the right way, Joy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is about establishing that high touch relationship with the people that you think are going to give you the most amount of money, right? And so you look at it from a political fundraising perspective, right? And so you make lists of people, you identify, okay, I think Sally can afford to give me $1,000 or Tom can afford to give me $500 or maybe Mary Jo can give me $10 and you actually sit down and you make lists of people. 
You add up all of those numbers, you take 80% of that to build yourself in some cushion, and that's really what you can realistically raise. But then you have to be committed, and you have to hold yourself accountable and hold your fundraising team accountable for actually then checking those names off the list when you pick up the phone and you dial for dollars. I think if you're not committed to doing that, you're probably not going to be successful in business. Absolutely. So it wouldn't matter if somebody gave you a million dollars, you're probably still not going to succeed. Right. Yeah. So kind of the other side yeah. of that. It's true. So I did talk a little bit about stocking, so we'll, we'll change up. So um, <laughs> there have to be like a million different crazy stories of crazy crowdfunding campaigns that you guys have seen. Let's share one that was just like nuts. <laughs> um, you don't have to say who the company is, you can just, you know. Oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll just mention a couple in kind of a composite way, so okay, I'm not throwing anyone <coughs> under the bus in general. Um, there's, there's a very fine balance between procrastination <laughs> and execution. <laughs> and many of us in the room probably have um, kind of experienced that balance. And for us, we find that those campaigns who um, come to us and say, I want to raise a million dollars and I have the best idea since sliced bread. And we say, okay, how are you gonna raise that million dollars? Well, Plum Alley, what are you gonna do for us? <laughs> because there's often a, an assumption that if you have such a fabulous product, then we're going to wanna to eat that up and we're gonna fund you ourselves. And that's not how it works. And that's not how any crowdfunding site works. But it's really interesting for me, and I think that the, the most bizarre stories are those products that come to us where where there is really uh, a belief that once the campaign's up, that they can just walk away from it and millions will pour in. Because they see some of those campaigns on Kickstarter, right? And they say, okay, like if a dude can raise a million dollars for underwear, like I can, and potato salad. Potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> or there was actually a crazy underwear campaign on Kickstarter that raised over a million dollars. But the point is, is that Kickstarter actually goes out and sources some of those companies and some of those campaigns. So that often then deflects from some of the campaigns that actually don't do very well, right? A million dollar crowdfunding campaign, you're not gonna, it's, it's very rare that that's gonna happen. And honestly, if you're doing a million dollar campaign, you also have the money to buy a PR team, to buy marketing, to buy lists to X, Y, and Z to really make the campaign a success. So I think from the just the perspective of unrealistic expectations is usually one of our most bizarre stories, and we get that we get that quite a bit. So the the more that um, we educate, because I think we're all pretty educated here, because we're you know entrepreneurs, we're involved in tech and et cetera, et cetera. The more that we can educate other people around that crowdfunding as an industry, there's tremendous potential. Right. And when I speak um, for Plum Alley, and I ask everyone in the room when I first start, like how many people have heard about crowdfunding, usually only about half of the room raises their hands. And these are even groups of entrepreneurs. So there is so much potential there. But I think that the myths of crowdfunding around, you know, that example, the million dollar example, for example, um, really um, um, shade um, a nasty light on what crowdfunding is and what it's not and what it can really be productively used for. Okay. So crowdfunding's tripled in the last two years, which is kind of a crazy growth rate, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a lot of different philosophies on what the things are you have to have to have a successful campaign, blah, blah, right? There seems to be three things that in all the information that I've been able to discover that are consistent. The perfect message, mm -hmm. right? Um, being very clear on how much capital is needed. Mm -hmm. So there's that transparency there. And then as you talk about skipping the cold start, is there one other thing that you would add to those that you think people like really, really has to be there for each one to be successful? We always we always say that for us the the equation for success is the right product for the right dollar amount, funded by the right person or or um, created by the right person. Okay. So it's the entrepreneur herself, it's her network, and it's the product. Okay. Cool. So, girl talk. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> why should uh, not that time? Not that kind of <laughs> Not that bad. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it is Women's Founders Month, right? We're talking a little bit about things like that. So, why should women-owned businesses be singled out, right? That's probably the mm -hmm. biggest thing that you mm -hmm. hear. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because when you look at sites like Indiegogo and Kickstarter, 75% of their audience is men, and only 25% of their audience is women. So, even if you're a female-owned company, 
there's still very little chance that you're going to get picked up by their audience because when you look at Indiegogo and Kickstarter and some of the others, um, the products are very male dominated. Sometimes the products aren't very nice toward women and sometimes they can be very misogynist and actually pretty sexist. Um, and often people are raising money for things such as um, I want to do a crowdfunding campaign to reimburse my Uber fees for a party I went to last night. That was actually a real crowdfunding campaign. Um, or oh, it actually she doubled her goal. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, yeah, crazy. Um, or the potato salad, the potato salad right. recipe potato campaign, salad which was crazy. crazy, right? And so Deborah really wanted to create a space for true legitimate entrepreneurs and to do that for women because she knew that women really were disadvantaged when it came to putting themselves out there for asking for money. So what do you think is the biggest obstacle for women who are starting up? Um, being okay with delegating and not feeling that they have to do 100% of everything themselves. Mm -hmm. And from all of the pools of amazing ideas that they have, being able to say, okay, I'm going to work on one thing and one thing only and rock that and then I'll move on to number two. Okay. And I think that's often um, a big learning lesson for women and particularly from a crowdfunding perspective, we know another marker of success is all the other things that a woman may have going on in her life at any point in time and how much time and energy is she dedicating to that one campaign because that one campaign is a larger reflection of her business. Okay. So what industries, like women now kind of cross over to pretty much every industry that's out there. What industries are still lacking that you think are still lacking female entrepreneurs? You know, from a crowdfunding perspective, we see female entrepreneurship represented in, in every industry. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I think from a tech perspective, um, the tech companies that we've seen come through are um, a lot of really cool apps. Um, they're usually apps in traditionally female represented spaces so like fashion, beauty, cosmetics, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So what I would love to see personally are more female founded companies in spaces that aren't just for women where there's um, a more equal gender distribution around companies that are founded by women but actually those products and services are also bought by men. And that's just a personal, that's a personal No, that's wish. good. Personal's good. Um, so a little bit about success, right? And then I'm going to talk a little bit about money because we had a conversation about money and, and things earlier outside of just the crowdfunding thing. Um, how do you personally define success? <laughs> so, I, mean, I think it's no, a I'm, personal thing. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm laughing because for me that's changed over time. Um, you know, when I, when I left my, my day job, you know, I quickly realized what that really meant. Um, for me, six figures became something, overnight it became something very real, and it wasn't just something fun that I did on the side. It became a really, real legitimate business. I think um, I, I feel more successful now than what I did when I had my day job, even though um, in the beginning, your compensation structure, as many of us can relate to, changes dramatically almost overnight. <laughs> and you realize, oh my gosh, what happened to all my benefits? Oh my gosh, what happened to my bonus? What happened to my stock options, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so you learn pretty quickly that if you're doing something you really believe in, and you know, I know that people always say, do what you love and only do what you love. I think that that sets us up for a lot of really awkward expectations because we can't always love what we're doing and we shouldn't always love what we're doing we do because then it kind of becomes something that just becomes you might routine. Not love it anymore. Exactly, right. <laughs> so, you know, if we do something we really believe in and we're really firmly, passionately committed to, then for me, that's more about success. And I even define that that way for six figures. So obviously I'm not looking at women's tax returns and I don't ever want to move into that model. Um, but I do define success as being accomplished in your career whether that means that you still work in the corporate sector, whether that means you've left the corporate sector and have launched your own business, and you may not even be earning six figures right now because you're working for free, because you're working for yourself, <laughs> or it could mean anything in the middle. So for me, success has changed in the sense of it's more about how I wake up and how I feel every morning and that sense of urgency to wake up. So on Sunday night, I can't wait for Monday morning. And it used to be on Sunday night, I felt like the little kind of tingles in the tummy that said, oh my God, I don't want to go to work tomorrow, right? And so that, that for me was one of the shifts of how I define success, is like getting really enthused and being really passionate about wanting, even if, you know, we can all probably relate to the fact that being an entrepreneur is really, really hard. And now all of a sudden you're doing things that you used to hire people to do, right? 
Um, and so it's not, it's not easy and it's not always fun, but if you're really committed and really passionate about what you're doing and you're really determined to make it work, then to me, that's how I feel success. Okay, that's a good answer, I think. Um, it can't be a bad answer because it's your answer. Um, so let's say somebody runs a successful crowdfunding campaign. They got an angel investor or their mom to write them a check for the next tranche of money. Now they have to go raise venture capital. So we talked a little bit about this yesterday. Mm -hmm. So I am, um, it's interesting. 78% of all venture capital firms do not have a female partner in the world, in the world. Um, so Silicon Valley has now become, you know, as they call it, right, stale, <laughs> pale, and male, right? <laughs> I did not, that's not my term. Okay. And, and guys, we still like you. Yes. Um, but I was, <laughs> right. so we were talking, so I mean, people have seen like the, the Kleiner Perkins lawsuit and all the other stuff mm -hmm. like that. And we talked a little bit today, like I was talking to Mike Abbott from Kleiner Perkins mm -hmm. and you know, I know Mark Andreessen and I was talking to, to Mark and so Andreessen Horowitz has seven senior partners. They're all men. Their philosophy is that we can't find a woman who'll take the job. It's interesting, you know, philosophy, but Andreessen has their own thing. You have to have been a successful CEO. Um, and you have to have either exited for in excess of $200 million or taken your company public. So those are not easy metrics to meet by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he actually told me they have one female they've actually made five offers to, she keeps turning them down. <laughs> Their philosophy was there's not enough women who are tech entrepreneurs who've made it to that level in general. So therefore, they get turned down because those women have everyone wanting them now. How do we fix that problem? <laughs> so we're going to assume they're telling the truth, right? How do we fix that problem? Because there definitely is a shortage of female CEOs who meet that criteria right, for sure. Right, right, right. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, some of the work that we're um, launching into now um, really looks at what, what young girls are really interested in. So girls 13 to 19 and getting them really interested in STEM and getting them really interested in the internet of things and getting them really interested at using technology to solve problems and helping them to um, understand that there is a space to do that. And many companies, actually um, large companies now, are really interested in working with young girls too um, from the perspective of understanding that there's a lot of creative energy and a lot of creative thought that happens when you put a group of girls together. Um, and then how to harness that energy to provide those safe spaces so that girls, as they move through their teenage years, can really become really self-assured with kind of playing in that same sandbox, right? And so it's more about technology. It's more about being comfortable around money. It's more about being okay with like taking risks and asking for help and, and being okay with asking for money. And some of the programs that companies that we're thinking about partnering with now actually provide those opportunities. Um, and this is not obviously going to change overnight. Of course not. But I think that there are many young girls out there who are more and more interested in technology. And if there are more opportunities for us to find ways where when we give them technologies, we're still not putting them in the pink box, right? So even when you go to Toys R Us now, you think about like, you know, technologically friendly toys. Right. Um, you know, there's still kind of that Barbie influence to all of it, right? And so how can you create a different space to become more gender, gender neutral? So even when a girl's playing a game, mm -hmm. it's a different type of game. And on the flip side of that, when boys are playing the game, it's not sexist, it's not misogynist, it's not beat em up, kill em, but there's actually more of a middle space where um, boys and girls are collaborating in a different way and working together in a different way. All right, so we always have to ask a question about failure. Because, you know, it's, we don't really look introspectively at our successes, but when we <laughs> fail, we have a whole different viewpoint. So talk a little bit about a failure that happened along the way and what you learned from that. Yeah. Um, so, oh my gosh, there, there are so many. And I always see failures as really, really good opportunities to learn something and do it differently. Um, so... You know, going back to one of the things I said earlier, um, I think for me, my biggest learning lesson in life was the importance of the fact of knowing that you can't do it all by yourself. No matter how type A you are, no matter how independent you are, knowing when is the right time to ask for help. And then on the flip side of that, knowing when is the right time not to ask for help. So when I first launched Six Figures, I asked a lot of questions mm -hmm. and I got a lot of feedback. 
And there was a point where it felt like I was getting so much feedback that that feedback was really starting to drive the intent and the structure and the strategy behind Six Figures, which ultimately then when I took a step back and said, wait a minute, this is not the direction I want it to go. How is this happening? It was because I was really, I was listening, but I was listening a little too well. And so I, <laughs> so I wasn't putting up the right boundaries to know when to say no and to know when it was deviating from the larger sort of something that I felt in my heart that I wanted to do with it. So, um, you know, that's one of the things I always encourage, particularly women too, because we like to get feedback, we like to ask for advice, but know when to stop listening. Know when to take the good parts from whatever someone is telling you or talking at you about, right? But then know when to stop listening. And this applies for, you know, for the dudes in the room too. Is that sometimes, sometimes we get so much feedback and we don't know what to do with it and then we start to self-doubt what we're doing. And to know that deep in your heart you do know what you're doing and you know what the right path is, you just need to listen more to that voice instead of like consistently paying attention to everybody else in the room. Okay. The balance. So if we were sitting, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Let's say we're here a year from now and we're having a conversation it's been a great year for you. All your wildest dreams have come true. What did you achieve? Oh my gosh, good question. Um, so from a Plum Alley perspective, we'll have many, many, many successful crowdfunding campaigns come through the door. And those crowdfunding campaigns will go on to raise angel and VC monies at a, a more significant rate than what's happening now. Um, which is now it's, it's happening, but we really want to make sure that women continue to move up the chain of capital raising. Um, we at Plum Alley are launching a new program called A Thousand Strong, which connects female entrepreneurs to potential non-equity based investors. Um, and so that would be successfully launched and we'd be in year two of that program. Um, from a six figures perspective, we'll have launched the membership campaign completely. Um, and then we will have launched at least two or three new markets within a year. All right. That's a hefty goal, so <laughs> I'm calling her back next year, so we're going to find out how to handle that. So it's like, and now I've got it on video, so oh, yeah, now no I, need, I need to hold myself accountable and take some That's right. <laughs> so um, you're kind of the end for this, but I just want to ask the question. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> Um, wow. Um, you know, for me, I think it's the balance of at the end of the day, um, feeling really happy about the choices that I made along the way and knowing that I impacted the world in a much larger way. And I know that everybody says that everyone says, you know, they want to give back in a way that, you know, they can be remembered for giving back and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for me, it's, you know, it's not so much about seeing, you know, the first woman president because I think we'll do that this next time around. So you can check that off the list. Um, but it's, you know, it's also about finding ways to give back in really everyday ways that contributes to a larger whole. So wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, within 20 or 30 or 40 years that from just a, a funding perspective that men and women were raising money together and that more, more VCs um, were attracted to female-based companies and more founders were sharing in the gender distribution of you know, their management teams. Um, and so for me, the work that I do just on an everyday basis, like I really hope that that propels that forward. But at the end of the day, like honestly, like I just, I just want us to be happier. Right? So I think sometimes all the technologies sometimes isolate us. As much as they bring us together, they can also isolate us in a lot of ways. Sure. And I think we've started to think much faster because, again, we're responding to so many emails, we're reading so much, we're, you know, we're flip-flopping between different devices. But at the end of the day, like, really, how is all that making us feel? Like, do we really feel happier? And so for me, a large part of the work that I'm doing in rebranding my consultancy practice is around really addressing that happy component. And are we happier as a society? Are we happier at the end of the day when we go to bed? Or do we go to bed in full anxiety because we realize that we have 300 emails that we haven't gotten to, right? So really, where is the trade-off between feeling that you really have a fulfilled life and feeling really productive, but not letting too much technology get in the way of that? Because, you know, you guys, honestly, it's just going to get worse, right? Like, as we advance, right. like, we're going to get more information and more information to have access to more and more and more. But how is that making us happier and how can we use that in a positive way to actually make us make that make us happier by using it instead of making us feel more isolated that's cool 
Yeah, I think that the reality is we're going to face the same data deluge that CIOs and people face for a number of years because now yeah. they get all these data sources and they don't know what to do with them. And so data just goes into this giant black hole yeah. somewhere, yeah. which is not really a good thing, particularly when it comes to human beings, right? Data for data's sake, that might work out okay for. Um, so one last question before we go to the rapid fire question. And that is, <laughs> if you were conducting this interview, what question would you ask? Wow, I didn't know that was, this one was coming. I know. Um, yeah, I threw a few in there that you had no idea were coming. That so I, I, whenever, whenever I, I talk to groups and whenever there's um, kind of like an interactive dialogue, I always ask um, the, the people, the guests on the panel, and the room itself, what did you want to be when you were a little girl or a little boy? And how did that dream inspire what you're doing today? I have a different question, but that's a good one. So what did you want to be when you were, oh, I happen to know <laughs> no, the answer, but it's interesting, so. Um, I, I wanted to be a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the outfit. <laughs> um, Nothing wrong with that. And I think that there's probably a part of that. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't walk around with pom poms and you know the little white leather boots. But um, I think there's a part of that cheerleader you component. You in Nebraska. <laughs> in, in New York, that might not work. Um, you know. Unless you're in Times Square. Unless then, you're in Times yeah. Square, you want to be with the naked cowboys, then maybe that would work just fine. <laughs> and we're not joking about that. That actually could happen in New York. Right, but, it could. Um, no, but I think that there is kind of that, that cheerleader sort of component to you know, all the work that I do now in terms of you know, the mentoring and the coaching and the consulting services that I provide. And I, you know, to the best of my ability, I try to do that from a place, again, of happiness and really becoming more in touch with how experiences make you feel. Um, and I think from an entrepreneur perspective, no matter if it's you know, a large company working on a branding strategy or a crowdfunding campaign that we work with at Plum Alley or just the work that I do with Six Figures, it's really providing happier spaces because in happier spaces, your employees are happier, they're more productive. If your customers are happier, they keep buying from you, right? And so it's like, it's win, 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 win. And so to create more opportunities like that, like that's how I do my little cheerleader. Okay. 